Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. Let me apologize up front. The sound quality for the first couple of minutes is not going to be great, and then it's going to improve dramatically, so I apologize. Today's show, we're going to be talking about foods and diet that can increase your fertility. I really enjoyed this show. Here's a sample of what you're going to hear. So we said, okay, we're making very low-quality, poor-quality embryos. What can we do to change the outcome of your ability to conceive with in vitro fertilization? So our first three or four patients, we said, all right, we need to change your diet. We need to put you on more protein, which was obviously lacking in their diet. We need to increase the protein and kind of give you a guided diet to be able to start to, to eat a little bit healthier and get more proteins and less carbs in your system. And sure enough, patients went through in vitro fertilization cycles, having little to poor quality embryos to transfer, to all of a sudden having excellent eggs, excellent quality embryos, having twins when we transferred two embryos, and and having extra embryos to be able to freeze for future cycles. I'm Dawn Davenport, the Director of Creating a Family. We are the National Infertility and Adoption Education and Support Organization, and you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. We are a weekly radio show, and we use the podcast model. That way you can listen whenever and wherever you want. You can also subscribe to the podcast to get notice of each new episode on your listening device, be it your phone, tablet, or computer. You can subscribe using whatever app you're currently listening to the show on, or you can go to our website, creatingafamily.org slash radio show, and subscribe there. There's a subscribe button. This show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Faring is pleased to offer their IVF green light program, providing discounts of up to 50% on select IVF products. All cash-paying patients are eligible, and unlike other programs, there are no financial requirements. To get more information, you can go to the website at ivfgreenlight.com, or you can speak with your doctor or infertility clinic for more information. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of our gold sponsors who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to the patient community. Some of our wonderful gold sponsors include Fairfax Cryobank. Fairfax has been a leader in sperm donation for over 25 years and is dedicated to supplying updated and verified information, medical as well as personal, on their donors. Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey. They have been a recognized scientific and patient care leader in the field of infertility with seven offices in New Jersey. 
they maintain IVF delivery rates well above the national average. Nightlight Christian Adoptions were pioneers in offering embryo donation services to clients throughout the world through its Snowflakes Embryo Adoption Program. And the law offices of James Fletcher Thompson. They are a South Carolina law firm committed to assisted reproductive law. That would include embryo donation, egg donation, sperm donation, surrogacy, just a whole host of things, as well as, of course, all types of adoption. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our weekly e-newsletter. We let you know about the latest developments in infertility or adoption. Uh, In fact, we have two separate newsletters, one for infertility and one for adoption, and you can sign up for either or for both. Uh, And uh, we let you know about the new content we add to the site, and we do add five pieces of new content every week, so we tell you about that in case some of that might be relevant to your journey. Uh, We also let you know about the upcoming week's blog and show topic. And as far as the show goes, you can submit, uh, after you receive the newsletter, you can submit to us your questions that you'd like our uh, experts to answer, and you can submit it anonymously or or not. Uh, And so I've mentioned some of the gold sponsors. We also have other great sponsors whose generosity allows us to bring you this show. We ask that when choosing an infertility service provider, please choose one from the Creating a Family directories on the service provider page of our site. You can search by location, services provided, and just other factors that we think are important in choosing. And by using these directories, you support those who support us, and we thank you. Today's show, as I mentioned, is going to be on foods and diet that can increase your fertility. This show is a re-airing of a show that we did uh, a couple of years ago, and it's absolutely one of my favorite shows. It's, it is truly a fascinating topic, and the research is really interesting. It's also empowering, I think, for for patients because it gives you something that you can do uh, that might actually have a significant impact on your ability to conceive. Our guest was Dr. Jeffrey Russell. He is the director of the Delaware Institute for Reproductive Medicine and a leading researcher on the impact of diet on fertility and fertility treatment. Uh, I hope you enjoy the show as much as I did. Welcome, Dr. Russell, to Creating a Family. Great. Glad, delighted to be here. Okay, I, I, uh, as most of our listeners probably already know, I am a research geek. I find research fascinating, and I, I there always seems to me a bit of a disconnect uh, because th- there's all this great research going on, but it often doesn't ever trickle its way down into the patient community. That's one of the things that uh, we spend a lot of time trying to do here at uh, Creating a Family, and one of the reasons I love the ASRM conference. And so I uh, I want to start by talking about what was it that you were trying, why did you start this research? What was the question you were trying to answer? Um, just start with that. Okay. That's uh, a great place to start. Um, being in practice for over 25 years, I've been able to help thousands of couples conceive and, and achieve their dreams of becoming parents. And early on in my career, I had some very healthy young 25, 28, 32-year-old women that were in excellent health, were very thin, athletic, um, had percent body fats in the 18 to 20%, um, weighed about 110 to 115 pounds, were very thin, very attractive women that would do in vitro fertilization. 
And these women would go through in vitro fertilization. They'd make um, lots of eggs, but not really good quality eggs and make very poor quality embryos. And after doing several cycles on several of these women, we kind of took a step back. So the research was generated, okay, what are we missing in these people's inability to conceive? They're young, they're healthy, they're not overweight, um, their husbands have sperm, they're doing all the right things. And we started to look at their nutrition. Thin women or average weight women can usually get away eating whatever they want to eat. So we looked at their nutrition and we had them start filling out nutritional logs. So we had them write down for three days everything they ate. And then we put it into a, a software program called FitDay, um, which was one of the beginning programs and that we use for nutrition analysis. And we found that these patients were eating carbs for breakfast, carbs for lunch, and carbs for dinner and saying they were eating very healthy. They would eat like pasta, vegetables, and a potato, no soda for dinner. They'd have a sandwich for lunch and a cereal or oatmeal for breakfast. And they were eating 75 to 80% carbohydrates. So we said, okay, we're making very low-quality, poor-quality embryos. What can we do to change the outcome of your ability to conceive with in vitro fertilization? So our first three or four patients, we said, all right, we need to change your diet. We need to put you on more protein, which was obviously lacking in their diet. We need to increase the protein and kind of give you a guided diet to be able to start to, to eat a little bit healthier and get more proteins and less carbs in your system. And sure enough, the patients went through in vitro fertilization cycles, having little to poor quality embryos to transfer to all of a sudden having excellent eggs, excellent quality embryos, having twins when we transferred two embryos, and, and having extra embryos to be able to freeze for future cycles. So Let me also, ask, how many women did you study? Well, initially we started with like five women who we did this little pilot on. Since that time, we've had over 325 women that have gone through that we've actually analyzed their diet and looked at the protein to see if we could identify how much protein they needed to eat, where was the statistical difference in the amount of protein from a poor egg quality cycle, in vitro fertilization cycle, to an excellent egg embryo in vitro fertilization cycle. So we now have probably over 350 patients in our study um, that we've analyzed. Okay, so you, you, you've already hinted that, that what you found was uh, increasing the protein, but uh, now, now let's be specific. Um, increasing the percent protein in the diet, is that what you found was the, the tipping point for embryo quality? Yes. And the way we did that is we had everybody going through in vitro fertilization in our program fill out a, um, a three-day diet analysis. We had them put down everything they ate and drank. They needed to look it up, and then they put it into this software program. The software program would then give us the information about uh, the nutritional analysis and balance of proteins, carbs, and fats. 
and we then correlated the information with their number of eggs, egg quality, number of embryos, and pregnancy rate. And what we found was that people that were eating over 25% proteins had twice the amount of embryos available for transfer and four times the pregnancy rate. And and is that's 25% protein. So if uh is it one of those situations where the more the better so if somebody increased their protein content to 50% do you see a subsequent continual increase in their pregnancy rates or is 25% uh the cutoff? 25% was the cutoff. 30% had a 3 to 5% increase over 25% protein in ultimate pregnancy rate. And then when we correlated it with carbohydrates, we found that if the patient ate less than 40% carbohydrates and greater than 30% proteins, their egg quality, their embryo quality was maximum, so that their pregnancy rates were greater than 80%. Um, their outcome from in vitro fertilization was maximized. So that was sort of the statistical numbers that we had to be able to kind of maximize not only the protein but also the supplemental carbohydrates that they were eating. As well. So let me repeat that to make sure that I that I got that right. Less than forty percent carbohydrates in the percent of of diet, and uh, protein at around thirty percent. Correct. Okay. Correct. And that tended to maximize. Um, the uh, the the embryo quality. Well, have you studied any uh, to know that if people were to make this shift, has there been any research that would indicate that that their natural of their ability to con- to conceive naturally would also be enhanced, or or have you not seen any correlation between infertility and diet? No, um, that's a great question as well, and we also found an excellent correlation that we had patients that were overweight that we would say, listen, we want you to put you on this nutritional program. We don't, we never call it a diet because we never have restricted calories, the amount of calories that a patient is going to eat. So we say, listen, we need you to eat healthy. We need to eat nutritionally, a balanced diet, and we had a roughly about a 15 to 20% of our patients waiting to do in vitro fertilization that actually conceived naturally by just changing their diet. So not only did it help us with a quality for patients that needed in vitro fertilization, but it also had an impact on those couples that were just trying to conceive with standard infertility methods. And, and again, it was the 40, less than 40 carbohydrates, 30 uh percent protein that you found worked to increase fertility rates in general? Yes. Now, let's focus again. It's mostly the protein. When we looked at carbohydrates alone, um, carbohydrates were bad, but when they were combined with a high protein and a low carbohydrate is really where we saw the statistical difference in the success of the outcome of pregnancies, egg quality, and embryo quality. Does the type of carbohydrates matter? Because, you know, I, I know that we're not supposed to have, you know, say there's good food and bad food and all that, but we do hear about there's complex carbohydrates, you know, the whole grains and things such as that and fruits and vegetables. And then there's, you know, crappy carbohydrates, simple carbohydrates, which would be, you know, white bread and sugar and sodas and things like that. 
does it matter uh, if if you're eating? You maybe say if you're eating a diet that's high in carbohydrates, but it's high quality carbohydrates. Correct. Yes, it does. And what we try to do is educate our patients what the difference is between a good carbohydrate and a bad carbohydrate. So we say, you know what? If you have to eat bread, don't eat white bread. If you have to have a drink or a soda, drink a carbonated drink like a club soda versus a soda that has like 13, you know, tablespoons of sugar in it. We have um, them look at the the complex carbohydrates where they look at the vegetables and the fruits um, that we suggest that they eat to add into their diet. We don't want them to sort of just eat proteins and not eat carbohydrates. We want this to be more of a lifestyle change more of a nutritional uh, enhancement or enlightenment to their to their life and to their fertility and not to say, you know what, I'm going to do this to get pregnant, then I'm just going to go back to, you know, eating white bread for lunch and cereal for breakfast and, you know, a pasta for dinner or rice. Um, so we're really, uh, our main focus is, is a lifestyle change, and the lifestyle change is education about nutrition. Um, and the majority of our patients have, all felt better because they're eating less of the simple sugar carbs. They're having more energy. They're actually losing weight without even counting their calories. Um, and overall, it's it's a it's a healthier lifestyle for our patients. And so, uh, just to make sure I understood, because I may have misunderstood you, if you're eating the what we consider the good carbs, which is the things that you logically would think of, it's it's the whole grains and the fruits and vegetables, which have carbohydrates, but they're they're complex carbohydrates. If you're eating more than forty percent, but it's it's the good, it's the uh, complex carbohydrates. It, do, well, let me let me ask it a separate, a different way. Yeah, Even I, if you're I, eating co- complex carbohydrates, do you right. still recommend keeping it you no more be, than forty percent? You need to be below. You need to be at forty percent or less. Even if you're eating complex carbohydrates, hmm. and the grams of carbohydrates, you know, are going to be based on the amount of sugars that you're eating. So the the FDA and the nutritional analysis of everything you eat gives you the grams of carbohydrates. So you're going to be healthier and feel better and actually get less calories by eating complex complex carbohydrates than eating the cotton candy and the Pop-Tarts and the Twinkies, which are not going to be substantially nutritional for your body or for your egg quality. So what type of protein um, is, is, is there been any analysis, does it matter what type of protein you're getting? Plant-based, well, animal-based, anything along those lines, or what type of meat, white meat, dark, uh, red meat, that type of thing? Well, what we do is we each patient, you know, some patients are vegetarian, some patients won't eat meat, some patients won't eat fish, um, they don't eat eggs. So what we kind of do is talk to them and see what's available for them in their nutrition in their their daily diet that they'll be able to eat and what do they like. So we don't say, well, you need to eat you know, meat every day when they say, well, I'm a vegetarian. So we look at other protein sources such as soy, such as protein shakes, um, such as Greek yogurt with a high protein that are unflavored. Um, We look at fish. We look at, uh, you know, getting away from uh, the the cereals for breakfast, the oatmeal for breakfast, the bagel for breakfast. I mean, everybody says, well, I had a bagel and cream cheese for breakfast which is not unhealthy, but it really added little to no protein to your daily content of protein that's added into your nutrition. So we focus on the patient looking at, okay, 
like, what kind of foods do you eat? What's good for you? Um, Indian and Asian people eat a lot of rice, and they eat a lot of, they don't eat a lot of meat. And so we work with them with fish, we work with eggs, we work with uh, um, the soy proteins and the yogurts to get that into their diet on a daily basis. So we work with what they like rather than that's something they can live with rather than having me change their whole lifestyle to something that's really not going to be with them for a very long period of time. Um, what about beans and nuts, which great. you know the, the plant forms of of um, of of protein? Those are excellent. We always tell them rather than you know reach for a vegetable, reach for an apple, reach for nuts, reach for cheese. You know, have a yogurt for a snack. Have a, a low sugar yogurt with a high protein for a snack. We don't want you to starve. We want you to eat. We want you to eat protein. You know, if you're going to have a turkey sandwich for lunch and you love turkey, we say get a turkey sandwich, get two turkey sandwiches, and throw the bread away. Eat the cheese, eat the turkey, and eat the lettuce and the tomato. And just get rid of the bread. So you're not hungry. You're, you know, you're, you're taking the carbs out of it, and you're increasing your protein. So simple things like that, we would work with them on, on, uh, on helping them to, to handle the high protein in their diet. Have there been other studies uh, that you know of that have uh, supported the idea that it is uh, increasing protein will increase both fertility and success with uh, infertility treatment? Um, I th- let's go over what's kind of been done and what was actually also presented at ASRM. Um, in the animal model, they've looked at uh, rainbow fish, and they looked at rainbow fish and the amount of protein, and they found a critical level of protein was uh, at about 44 to 42 to 44% in fish maximized their ability to reproduce and have their highest yield of offspring and, you know, little baby rainbow fish. Um, so in the animal model, there's a couple of studies that are out there. In the human model, um, most people look at body fat, they look at BMI, um, and they really do not look at the content. They say you need to eat healthy, do not smoke, um, drinking alcohol. We actually, I didn't mention, but we have our patients that are drinking. We have them stop drinking alcohol just because of the sugar content and the breakdown of wine and in beer. So we cut out the beer and the wine from them. Um, and... And we uh, also, there was one other study that was looking at levels of protein, uh, recently presented ASRM, and looked at levels of protein of 13, 15, and 19%. And their study did not show any difference in egg or embryo quality. Um, And that's the same thing that we found, and we didn't find a difference until we went above 25%. So the people that did the study really didn't look at people that were eating over 25%. They looked at people that were eating, you know, the 10 to 15 to 19% protein, which really does not have an impact on fertility or outcome of egg quality. So we have seen some animal study support. But there, if I'm understanding, I mean, the general rule of thumb is that a lot of fertility doctors have told their patients, the focus has been, as you point out, on BMI, yes. body mass index. And um, what is the general rule of thumb on on BMI that uh, that that uh, research is supported for fertility? Okay, 
So I am not a BMI person because our studies, when we looked at BMI across the board, BMI was not different in the outcome in equality, embryo quality, or pregnancy rate. Uh, the difference for us when we put our 350 patients together was the amount of protein that they ate. Um, and I think you'll... I think you'll see if you kind of look at some of the other fertility studies, they look at differing outcomes of patients that are overweight. And in some studies, they show that patients that are overweight have the same fertility as somebody that's not overweight. And in other studies, they they think there's a significant difference in outcome. Yeah, so, I've seen, I have seen, I have read some of the research, and there does right. seem to be something that would indicate that BMI is greater than 30, I believe, um, are associated with reduced fertility and, and reduced uh, uh, effectiveness uh, with uh, treatment. Well, if you look at those patients that are high BMI, over 30, over 35, that use a donor egg, the fertility outcome is the same as anybody that's normal BMI hmm. or low BMI. So to me, it all points towards the quality of the egg. The second thing about BMI are those patients that are overweight, do they have high elevated glucose levels? So is it somebody that's thin, normal weight, or overweight, what is their glucose level? Because the glucose has a significant impact on egg and embryo quality. So can you divide up a study looking at patients that are overweight with a normal glucose versus patients that are overweight with a high glucose, and then look at the pregnancy rates. So to me, overweight patients should not be ostracized for going through an IVF cycle if they have a good nutrition, a normal glucose level, and they're on the right uh, protein intake in their average daily diet. And I think you'll see, from my estimation, that the studies have not been done to really look at what these people actually eat and the nutritional analysis to whether they're pregnant or not pregnant. So why does increasing the protein in the diet um, and topping off at around the 30%, why does that affect egg quality? Which, okay. assuming it's egg quality, is, is as you've pointed out, seems to be the key because obviously improved egg quality is going to improve general fertility with or without treatment, and, and certainly with IVF, egg quality matters as to both whether or not they will the, the eggs will fertilize and then and then the quality of the embryo that results. So mm-hmm. yeah. So um, why? What's the why? what's the mechanism? Okay, so great question. So what's happening inside the cell that the protein is doing? Um and this is my hypothesis because we're we're trying to get into the electron microscope of the changes within the actual cell itself. But it appears that the environment that's bathed in a higher sugar or glucose level is not advantageous to the the mitochondria, to the cytoplasm itself, and to the the nucleus. So if you look at the particular components of the cell, there's something about lowering the sugar level, increasing the protein level that gets a better environment for that egg to to uh, flourish, to grow and to develop. We also know from early in vitro fertilization studies that when we had a very high content of sugar or glucose in the media, uh, 
our embryo culture results were not very good. As soon as we start to lower the glucose level in the egg culture in the early embryo development medias, the embryo quality started to improve. And a lot of the culture medias for in vitro fertilization now look at the different levels of sugar and the success of the developing developing embryo seemed to be better with a very low level of glucose in the beginning and increasing that glucose level as the embryo grows to a three, four, or five-day embryo. Well, I'm sitting here thinking, how long in advance would you need to shift your diet? And then and then, if I expand that question, if I, if I continue to go back in time, we're told that females uh, have all the eggs they're ever going to have um, in their utero. I mean, that as they are gestating, their eggs are formed. And so so how does changing for a, just a blink in time, really, over the, the lifespan of an egg, uh, how does changing the short-term environment, increasing the protein and decreasing the carbohydrates, which affects the glucose, how does that affect the eggs, when in fact the eggs were formed back when the woman was a fetus? Great. All right, so great question. Okay, so you have all your eggs, and they've been there forever. Now, the eggs that you have, it takes them approximately two to three months to go through the ovary's dormant stage inside the ovary, to be able to make it through the front lines, to be able to come to the surface of the ovary and then start to increase its development. So if you look at a cross-section or a slice of the middle of an ovary, you'll see a lot of inactive, what they're called primordial follicles or very early, early, early eggs that are dormant. So they really haven't even started their growth or their development or their progression to be a mature egg and ovulate. So that process um, takes about almost two and a half to three months, which is very, very similar to the process of a developing sperm. To make a sperm from a single cell to a fully matured sperm with a sperm head and a sperm tail takes about 76 days. Well, we think that the egg probably takes about 76 days to go from an inactive cell through the process of developing, maturing, and then becoming a mature oocyte or egg to be able to ovulate. So we tell our patients that it takes about two and a half months to three months to have an impact on the glucose protein environment in the ovary before actually ovulating. And that that environmental change and the dietary change and the nutritional lifestyle changes, we say, takes about three months. So in an ideal world, what you would be wanting is before somebody goes through an egg retrieval for three months in advance to have had this uh, uh, nutritional change. Correct. And that's what we saw. We actually had people wait two to three months, and that's when we saw at three months. We've had people say, we don't want to wait. So we would actually see a little bit of change after a month, and then we'd see a little bit more change after two months, and then by their second or even their third in vitro fertilization cycle, they're now making beautiful embryos. So I can say you can do it sooner, but the full effect of your lifestyle changes is really not <laughs> going to happen for about two and a half or three months. 
And and how long has your study been running? We've been doing this for several years. I'm going to look back, and probably since 2009 or 2010 is when we started this. Um, and now we're it's almost instituted almost completely into the practice. So patients that we see and patients come to us from other programs and say, you know what, they told me I need donor egg, but I'm not a good IVF candidate. You know, I'm 34, I'm 36, I'm 38. I have a normal FSH level, but they can't get an embryo to transfer. So I say, okay, let's sit down and talk to me about what you eat. And they say, well, I, I eat it very healthy. I have oatmeal and a bagel for breakfast. I have a yogurt um, and usually a sandwich for lunch. And again, I have a pasta or something simple for dinner. And again, they're 60-plus percent carbs in their diet. And I say, okay, we will work with you. We will do an in vitro fertilization cycle with you, but I need you to totally change from a 60 to 80% carbs to a 30 to 40% protein diet. And it's amazing. It's really one of the simplest things. And everybody talks about health and nutrition and body fat and weight, but nobody's really looked at the specifics on how much and what exactly is the criteria to be able to get to the point where you're going to maximize your ability to have good quality eggs. Now, some people are eating healthy. They have good protein, and they're still not going to have good quality eggs. This is not for everybody, but the majority of people, it'll totally have an impact on their outcome and their success with their fertility. You are listening to Creating a Family. This show is produced with support of our sponsors, including Cryos International. Cryos International is a New York sperm bank, which is part of the world's largest international network of sperm banks. Today's show, we are talking about how diet can affect success in fertility treatment, as well as how it can affect fertility in general. Our guest is Dr. Jeffrey Russell. He is the director of the Delaware Institute for Reproductive Medicine, and he is the lead researcher on uh, some studies that have uh, he is, his clinic has been doing on the effect of protein in the diet on fertility. You, so if people are trying to determine the percentage protein, what do you recommend as an easy way? I mean, most of us, myself included, I have no clue what percentage of my diet is protein or not because I don't really track it. Right. I, I, you know, I think of terms of eating generally healthy, right. uh, and I know what's healthy, and so I eat that, but I really have not focused on protein. So uh, what do you recommend? You mentioned a software package, but if that's not available for the general public, are there apps out there? Are there things you can specifically recommend that people could use? Um, the, the the Internet is probably a, a remarkable source. Um for, for getting some of this information. And we started looking at different software programs. They have tons of apps that are out there. The Livestrong Foundation, um, you know, uh, Map My Diet. It's uh, my, my Diet Friend. So all of these apps have different um, uh, sort of nutritional analysis programs that can actually input you know they have 6000 foods or 8000 foods or 10000 foods in their in their catalog so you say well this is what i ate for breakfast so you just type it in or you put it into your smartphone or your to your app and then it'll 
by the end of the day, it'll give you your calories. They actually give you your minerals, your trace elements, your proteins, your carbs, your fats. It tells you your salt content. So you can actually nowadays easily find a a app friend or an internet friend or something that's easily able to uh, to provide you with this information. And so there's not one specific one. You just would suggest people play around and find um, one that works for them. We have used FitDay, and that's the one we started with before a lot of these apps came out. There's better ones that have more food choices um, than all the other ones. And LiveStrong is good, and there's several other ones. But from our study purposes, we didn't want to change software programs. We were trying to stay within our, our study boundaries. But um, with with a little bit of research, you can kind of find something that you're comfortable with and you like the the format or the application that provides you with that information. And, um, and I will support what you said. There are so many options out there, and most of them, and I'm thinking now in terms of, of apps or even something you download to your computer, um, and some are, you know, some are for the iPhone, some are for Androids, uh, and and they they differ. And the thing that one of the most important things to look for uh, would be one that has uh, a large list of foods that you actually eat. And you know, honestly, one of the downsides to these type of softwares is is that it's fine as long as you're eating. And when I say processed foods, I, what I mean is think, something that's a name brand or something that's simple. But if you are trying to put together like you you're cooking a pasta dish where you're you know steaming vegetables and putting in some making your own food in other words it's it takes a little more work um but if you're really just focusing on the protein it, that makes it easier because you can not have to um upload the entire recipe uh, but just upload the protein component of it yeah but i think let's say you're making pasta with meatballs i mean let's a very common dish, you know, and and the software program will have, um, you know, they'll have pasta, they'll have whole wheat pasta, they'll have penny pasta, they'll have, you know, mm-hmm. angel hair pasta. So you just kind of pick the pasta and then kind of either weigh it or take a guess for the grams. And it's not the calories I'm not concerned about, but then you're going to put the meatballs and the size of the meatballs and what type of meatballs and what type of meat it is, and you'll throw that into the software program and it'll calculate all that for you. So but if it, you've made your own tomato sauce, for instance, your own that's okay. marinara sauce, that, that's you've okay. got to, Well, yeah. I know, then you've got to though put in and say, okay, I used, you know, uh, 15 tomatoes, and I used three bell peppers, and I used two onions, and I used, and then I divided it up, and it made, let me think, how many? It made three cups. And so it's a little bit of a, a but it seems to me if you're really focusing on the protein, you wouldn't have to worry so much about that. You would just, Combine and just say, okay, but I used a pound of meat uh, and I made 30 meatballs mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. so that you could divide it up. I, yeah. I think the educational process, I mean, I think just by even looking at some of this stuff and seeing what you're doing and seeing what you're eating and getting the feedback at the end of the day of how many carbs and how many proteins, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a pretty rapid learning curve on saying, wow. You know, I mean, every patient comes back and says, you know, I thought I was eating healthy, and I, I realized I wasn't, I wasn't even getting 10% of protein a day. Yeah. And it's like, wow, you know. Could you walk us through a typical day? I think sometimes examples help people because I think there are a lot of people who think that they're eating healthy and are uh, e- eating 
low uh, low protein. In fact, I I almost wonder if if just our whole mentality, particularly uh, for women who are you know watching what they eat, if the mentality doesn't uh, it almost lead us away from uh, protein because we're thinking in terms of whole wheats, uh, whole grains you know, and vegetables. So could you walk us through just not that this is, you're not prescribing that this is what have, somebody has to eat every day, but walk us through a day that would, uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, snack, whatever, that okay. would result in roughly that less than 40 carbohydrate, uh, around 30 uh, protein. Okay. So I do this as well. So I practice what I preach because I was, you know, I everybody gets the winter, you know, uh, extra weight and pounds on. And I said, you know what, I need to stay focused on the protein. So I can take you through what I would do and how okay. I would eat through a, a, a typical day. Perfect. So the first thing I would do is I would look for something in the morning to start off with protein. And I wasn't a big egg eater, so and I didn't want the cholesterol, so I would make myself either egg white, omelets, egg whites, scrambled eggs, or make hard-boiled eggs, which were easy on the run to sort of eat. So I would start eating the egg whites or the egg yolk. If I was hungry for the extra calories, I would be okay, and start my day off with a little bit of protein. If I couldn't find any eggs, then I would go with Greek yogurt. I would go with sort of the plain yogurt, and or I would go with a, a flavored yogurt um, and try to get some protein and calories in that way. Uh, the next thing I would do is if I was really in a hurry and I was late and I couldn't do it, I would find a protein shake that was high protein, low carbs, or I would find a protein bar. Some of the, the Cliff Bars have over 20 grams of protein in them, and uh, I would use that to sort of start off my day, and I actually have one in front of me now, and the 20 grams of protein and the uh, total calories are 270 calories, uh, calories from fat, and the carbohydrates were 10%. So, again, I get um, protein, 20 grams of protein, which is about 40% of an average person's daily protein to start off with in the morning. And then for lunch, I would do sort of the same thing. I would try to find some sort of lean meat or turkey or chicken, some turkey slices, a sandwich or cheese, um, for snacks, I would have almonds first, walnuts second for snacks. Um, I would then eat cheese snacks or an apple or a piece of fruit. I would have raw vegetables in the afternoon. Um, one of the things I don't like to do is diet, and one of the things I hate to do is be hungry. So I surrounded myself with healthy eating snacks, um, whether it be lean turkey, whether it be Swiss cheese, whether it be you know, a hard cheese that I could eat and snack on, whether it could be an apple. Um, those were the things that I sort of had myself available to be able to eat rather than reach for the donut or reach for the sandwich or reach for the croissant or the bagel, which everybody loves. And I love the sugar just as anybody else. But if I had something to eat that was protein-based, I would feel better, I'd be less lethargic, and I'd be sort of promoting sort of a healthy protein diet. And then again, for dinner, again, I, w I would look for something chicken-based. I would look for fish. Um, I eat tofu. I eat seitan. Um, I eat um, soybeans, so all sorts of lentils and beans, stuff like that. 
And again, the uh, even though we hear that the uh, protein is not is, the vegetable-based proteins are an incomplete protein, um, you're not finding it that is a problem. So vegetarians are fine with eating even ve. I suppose we I'd throw vegans in there as well, but. Let's talk vegetarians right now, and then my question will go to vegans. For a vegetarian, they're fine with focusing on their uh, what they think of as typically their higher protein vegetables, your beans and your nuts. Right. And, okay. you know, again, um, the, Asian dairy population, problem, add, the Asian population has been shown to have a lower IVF success rate. And who are the highest rice eaters, you know, in in our culture, in our society? And it's people from... The Asian area of the world, their their basis for their diet is mostly rice. So, and their why should they have a lower pregnancy rate with in vitro fertilization versus other ethnic groups? And uh, my feeling is, is it all falls back to that they don't they eat their basic food as rice and carbohydrates rather than a protein. So what we do is we say, listen, we need to kind of replace the rice with something. That is vegetarian. I'd rather have you eat an incomplete protein as a vegetarian than rice or pasta. So I want to work towards getting their protein levels up. I want to work by cutting their carbohydrates down. Um, and so we really try to work within the patient's restraints of what they're comfortable that they'll eat and find foods that they do eat and then push those foods to make them eat more of that. Have you seen success with vegans, vegans being those who have no uh, animal uh, protein at all, including you know, eggs and, and milk and things such as that? Do they have a uh, harder time reaching, getting, being successful, number one, and for two, uh, reaching that 30%? Um, one of the things I love about being an infertility specialist and a reproductive endocrinologist is you have patients that are just, so anxious to try to do the best they can to try to create a family. So these are a very great group of people to work with. Highly um, motivated, shall we say. Hi, that's the word. <laughs> <laughs> so the word is highly motivated. So they are so anxious. I mean, almost they do such a great job. I mean, they'll say to me, like, can I, I just had the transfer. Can I go celebrate and have like a piece of candy or something like that to just, you know, I'm pregnant, can I do this or do that? So they're, they are so highly motivated that they'll go above and beyond to educate themselves, to read about this, to do as much as they can from the standpoint of making my job and my life easier to try to get them to a protein, higher protein track diet. Well, one thing I'm curious about, why did you say almonds uh, first, walnuts second? Just I'm because a big of the fat eater. content, right. Oh, I think almonds have a little bit less fat and calories, so, you know, I could easily eat, you know, 50 almonds at a sitting. Uh, so I'd rather eat 50 almonds than 50 walnuts, which just have a little bit higher caloric intake. You know, I'm trying to keep my summer figure. So. <laughs> well, I think we can all. I, I, I'm right with you on that one. Um, what is the – how does – a woman's age play into this. Uh, it lets, we, we all know that egg quality deteriorates with age, and we certainly see a more significant drop-off after the age of, of 35 and then certainly after the age of 40. For a woman who is, let's say, 38 and above, is this still a worthwhile thing to do uh, if she's over 40 and she uh, has uh, poor egg quality to begin with? Is this 
something that is uh, beneficial to do? It, yes. The answer is yes across the board. The answer is is that the aging process, we cannot do anything about it. But eating healthy, having a healthier, healthier lifestyle um, makes you feel better, makes you less lethargic, makes you age a lot slower. Um, and the aging process of the ovary and the eggs is the most sensitive cell in the body, so it's more sensitive to the aging process than anything else. So you can't reverse that aging process, but you could probably slow it or improve the environment of which the eggs are actually aging and the quality of their eggs that they're going to produce during a cycle. So it's not going to lower your FSH level. It's not going to bring up your AMH level, although we've seen slight changes we know that stress impacts that. We know that acupuncture affects that. But we also know that nutrition and healthy lifestyle affects that as well. So in my understanding, if, if, if a, say, a 25-year-old uh, shifts to a nutritional uh, plan that is higher in protein, that if that you suspect, I, I assume there has been no research to indicate this, but you suspect that that. Uh, all other things being equal, including genetics or whatever, that her eggs would age more slowly? Or another way to say that, when she's 35, she would have a, or 38 or 40, uh, she would be more likely to have uh, a, a higher egg count and a better quality eggs? Um, it does not. Okay, let's go through this again. It does not change your egg count. So your egg count is sort of an internal clock, and your aging of the ovary that process it's on its own time clock. But let's say let's take a thirty five year old that's eating healthy, that's exercising, that's not drinking, smoking, um, and or using drugs is gonna actually have a better environment for those eggs to flourish than somebody that is drinking or smoking or using drugs or just not eating healthy. So it's really the environment that I'm changing. It's not the number of eggs, it's not the count of the eggs, but it's it's the quality of the eggs that you're actually producing through the process. Okay. Now, what has the research shown as far as male fertility? I know that your your research specifically did not deal with that, but I suspect you're knowledgeable about other research, nutritional research that affects fertility. So what about with men? Do we expect to find the same thing with the uh, protein-to-carbohydrate ratio in the diet? Um, again, it's uh, so I, I really watch the literature on all this nutritional stuff to make sure we're on the right track and we're doing the right thing. And all the studies are out there about marijuana, about illicit drugs, about smoking and drinking and heat exposure for the men. And we know that that lowers sperm quality um, and count over time. But there was recently a study that was put out by the California Almond um, Association, and they showed that men that ate more almonds than men that did not had a better morphology and better quality sperm than men that did not. So they were sort of on the outskirts of looking at sperm quality and morphology, and they were sort of saying, if you're eating almonds, I mean, if you're that conscious about your health and what you're eating and snacking on rather than a donut or a Pop-Tart and you're eating almonds for a snack, those men actually had a better sperm count 
that was uh, sponsored by the California Almond Society or Association. Yeah, somehow I always get suspicious when something, is, you know, the, <laughs> the sponsoring agency finds that consuming their product um, actually has the uh, has a, a beneficial effect, but maybe I'm just being a cynic here. I, I, yeah, but I think what it is, it's telling mm-hmm. you that, yes, a healthier nutritional lifestyle will impact, and they just picked one small food, and they went ahead and said, listen, It'll help your sperm count. In, in general, though, from the protein to carbohydrate, has there been any research similar to yours, which was done on egg quality versus um, the uh, for, for men on sperm quality? Has there been any um, similar research? No. Well, that's something that certainly begs to be done. I would assume mm-hmm. um, that uh, has there been any nutritional research that you know of, other than you've mentioned the almonds. Um, are there other? Is there been other nutritional research done on what a man eats, excluding the things that you mentioned, which the, you know the the drugs and the smoking and the alcohol? Um, yeah, most of it's been similar to the women, where they looked at the men that are overweight have a lower sperm count, men that are exposure to heat, men that are exposure to smoking and drinking have a lower sperm count and a worse outcome with. Egg, uh, with embryo quality and, and pregnancy rate. So there are those studies that are out there looking at different factors, looking at medications, and but no one specifically said, okay, let me write down everything that the man's going to eat for three days. Let me then change his nutritional um, lifestyle. And actually the men actually follow the women. They do it together uh, a lot of times. And uh, we haven't particularly looked at the sperm morphology or the sperm count, but I would imagine that it would apply to men as much as it would apply to women. We have a question from Beth. Um, It's a little long. I'm going to shorten it. She is overweight. She has a BMI, uh, which would indicate that she is obese but not morbidly obese. She is wondering if if, if it is the weight loss uh, that she needs to be or if she increases the protein uh, but doesn't lose the weight, should she still expect to see an increase in her egg quality? Yes. If she, unless she's eating, if she's eating a healthy, nutritional, high-protein diet, she's not going to see a change in um, her egg quality. If her, if her nutritional analysis says that she's eating very low protein, um, by changing the content and the amount of protein in her nutrition, not only will she lose weight, it takes more energy to burn a gram of chicken than a gram of candy in your system. So your body has to increase its metabolism to process that the gram of, of chicken. So you'll increase your metabolism, you'll slowly bring down your BMI, and your egg quality by increasing your protein will, will increase. So it's not just the BMI. It's not just starving yourself. It's not losing weight. It's the environment that the eggs are being bathed in and exposed to. Is and I wonder when you see people who are significantly overweight, is it is it usual that you would find that they have a lower percentage protein in their diet, just because protein doesn't have a lot of calories and to be and usually assuming that their metabol there's not something wrong with your metabolism um, to get significantly overweight. Uh, you would have to be consuming a lot of calories. So, is it? But do you see that as a general rule that people who are significantly overweight 
uh, rough, usually have a smaller percentage protein in their diet? No. No, and I think um, there are patients that are overweight, morbidly overweight, that have no trouble getting pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they ovulate. Their ovulation function is totally intact. People that are overweight that have high estrogen levels that are anovulatory or do not over or that do not ovulate are impacted by their being overweight and not ovulating. So, again, don't look at being overweight as the factor in you're not getting pregnant. Are you overweight, not ovulating, and not eating a healthy diet? Are you overweight, ovulating, and not eating a healthy diet? So you need to separate the variables on yeah, what's the sense. issue and what's the problem. It's not right for physicians to say, you know what, you're morbidly obese, you're not going to get pregnant, you're just not a good candidate without working with the patient, knowing whether they're ovulating, knowing how to get them on a nutritional, healthy lifestyle, and then moving forward. How does all this relate to polycystic ovarian syndrome? You've mentioned a couple of things that have certainly you know, piqued my interest. One, um, the weight issue. The second one, the glucose issue, which all of those things, which we think of in term, when we think of PCOS as being some potentially impacted, affected by the PCOS, um, have any of the uh, have you done any research of your patients that come in who have had a diagnosis of PCOS to see how they are impacted, their fertility issues are impacted by increasing the protein, decreasing the carbohydrates? Yes, yes, we have, and it's dramatic. Patients that are um, either PCOS now there's thin patients that have PCOS. Mm-hmm. There's overweight patients that have PCOS. So we look at their ovulation function. We look at their fasting sugar or glucose level, and we look at their androgen levels to see where they're starting off. And then what we do is make the appropriate changes, either with the appropriate medications, with nutritional lifestyle changes, and take a very holistic approach to their treatment, to their ovulation process, um, and looking at all aspects of is it just an elevated sugar with a patient that's ovulating? Is it a patient that's not ovulating that needs to be ovulating, and why are they not ovulating? So uh, it's PCOS is a complex disorder which needs an attack from all angles, um, not just from weight, not just from ovulation, not just from nutrition, you know, but I think you need to take into consideration everything that impacts that patient's uh, ability to conceive. And I appreciate what you're saying. It's not an easy, and I think that sometimes people focus on the weight issue with PCOS, although, as you point out, uh, certainly not all people with PCOS are overweight. But it's an easy thing when people are overweight to focus exclusively on the weight aspect and not not look beyond that. Um, I'm not sure that is that a is that that may not be a fair criticism across the board uh, for the uh, fertility medical community, but it's certainly something that we hear from the um, from our audience who has PCOS. Uh, do you think that part is changing in the medical community to, to focus to look beyond just the weight issues? Um, I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. I mean, I see patients that come to my office from other practices that say, you're overweight, we will not treat you. Um, Well, yeah, in fact, there was a, uh, wasn't there, was it last year, I believe, I may not be um, remembering this correctly, but there was an ethical debate, I don't think it was this year, or maybe it was, at at ASRM, 
it was one of the debate things that was going on about whether or not you should clinics should uh, across the board refuse to to treat people based on their on their BMI. Did you attend that? Am I remembering this correctly? No, I don't, I don't agree with that. I mean, I don't yes. think that that's, well, that's what I mean. Perfect. It's I mean it's yeah across the, there there's some there's some right. who even believe that just across the board you should just say right. No. I mean it's it's sort of there's a problem there. There's issues there that you need to address, and as a medical professional, you need to say, okay, let's talk about all the issues that are got you to this point and where we need to do to get you back to where you need to be healthy. Um, I don't think that's appropriate to say, listen, your your BMI is too high for us to conceive. You're too high risk of a pregnancy if you get pregnant. You're overweight. And come back after you've had bypass or, you know, uh, lose 100 pounds. I don't, I don't think that's appropriate. That's not the way... I don't think patients should be handled that. I think they should be talked to and educated and given options and given direction and guidance to, to get to their goal. Well, on that, it's a great ending note, so we will stop there. Thank you so much, Dr. Jeffrey Russell, for being our guest today on Creating a Family. To get more information about uh, Dr. Russell, and I'm sure on his site he's also got uh, information on this study, uh, the site for his clinic is ivf dash success.com. Creating a Family has the largest infertility communities on the social networks, and we would love to have you join us. On Twitter, you can find me at Dawn Davenport One, or you can find us at Creating a Family on Twitter. On Facebook, there are three ways you can connect with us. One, you can connect with me at Dawn.Davenport One, or you can connect to our Facebook page just by liking it, or you can join our very active, very large uh, creating a Family Facebook support group. Uh, the easiest way to find that group is to type in the words Creating a Family in the Facebook search box, and we will pop right up. Thank you so much for joining us today. We will see you next week. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.